Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, November 20th, 2020. Boy, do we need a nice, quiet weekend. I don't know if we're going to get one. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary, and my colleagues and I hope that you can relax because I don't know that we're going to be able to. My colleagues, of course, being executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So yesterday, uh, mid midday, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, a, a, a lawyer named Sidney Powell, and uh, another Trump lawyer named Jenna Ellis, staged an event uh went on for about two hours uh uh alleging uh what uh a previous american political figure once described as a conspiracy so immense that um the entire republic apparently is hinging on uh the uh, you know is 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 on the hinge of a of a collapse uh and the takeover by a uh, group of people alternately defined as the Venezuelans, the Chinese, inner city politicians, Democrats, union officials, electoral officials, judges in at least four states, if not more. And... um, the the thing the Clinton is, Foundation, George Soros, Black right. Lives Matter, and Antifa. Right. The thing All that's missing is the ACLU and the so, Brady campaign. So when people look at what was said, and I, if you didn't watch, uh, I, I'm not sure that I could advise you to watch. But if you if you did watch, I, I want to say that when people who of goodwill who do not want to simply say this is all craziness or something view what Giuliani and Sidney Powell said in particular they say they offered no evidence there is no evidence to support the claim that uh they they the evidence that they provide has been uh is questionable or there is no evidence I'm now of the opinion that this relatively mild formulation works in service of the continuation of this conspiracy because it's not just that there's no evidence. It is that everything that is being alleged is cynical nonsense that you can only believe, and I say this quite literally, if you are insane, you cannot believe the narrative that Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell laid out unless you are insane. I speak as a lifelong anti-communist. I believe in international communist conspiracies. I believe that they exist or have existed. I do not believe that Hugo Chavez, who died in 2013, set in motion a plot to get Joe Biden elected in 2020. I do not believe that. You know why? Because I ain't crazy. That's why. And to have somebody stand in front of the country in, in, a, in a position as some kind of semi-official lawyer of the President of the United States and make this claim on the basis, by the way, of a single affidavit attached to a case with which she is not involved. That is a case filed by the Georgia lawyer Lynn Wood. A single affidavit that creates this entire narrative of a conspiracy involving uh, Venezuela and China and Hugo Chavez and Maduro and the company and, and, and one of the companies that is involved in vote counting. Um, it specializes in voter fraud. That's a quote. Yeah, specializes really in voter fraud, right. Yeah. There's, um, look, I can hear so, our audience already saying right now, the affidavits. Look at all the affidavits. That's witness testimony. That's evidence. And yeah, facially, that's compelling because it sounds like it's a lot of evidence. And you would think that 
well, that should be heard before a court. What they didn't say is they've put it before the courts in places like Michigan, where those affidavits were said very circumstantial, some of which were just completely not compelling and thrown out. In Arizona, where some of these were solicited via an online form, you can self-select your way into, into being an affiant in this case, and they were thrown out. Similarly, what Rudy Giuliani alleged during that press conference was a, a, a conspiracy in Pennsylvania to commit voter fraud to the tune of like 100,000 votes in places like Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Um, they're not arguing that in the courts. Rudy Giuliani, before a judge, said, this is not a, a fraud case. That's a quote. What they're arguing is in the court of public opinion. They're trying to poison the well by throwing everything they can at the wall. And you should be horribly offended by the abuse of your intelligence. But they're trying to poison the well to what end? Um, I, I, I would understand the goal of um, trying to, to fight it out in court, um, even, even though that is also, um, um, I think, um, at this point, uh, beyond preposterous. But w- what is the point of fighting it out in the, in the court of public opinion now? Well, the, the cynical answer to that is that there's a strategy that Trump is looking ahead to, say, 2024, somehow is acknowledging that he's lost this election, but is laying the groundwork for a, for maintaining a conspiracy theory and con, uh, maintaining a certain amount of support from his diehard, uh, the diehard Trumpians, so that he can, over the next four years, continue to generate his, his uh, unique brand of chaos um, and that actually is dangerous. That's not something anyone should want. Um, and that is unusual in in our transitions to power. First of all, does it matter? Does it matter what, I mean, it's fun to speculate. And uh, the interesting thing about this is that the only conceivable defense of Trump at this point for foisting this line on the American people in the political discussion at this moment when we have a COVID surge, we have a transition to another president, we have all kinds of things that the leadership in Washington should be taking up, and he has transfixed America negatively and positively with this. The only possible defense is that he is batshit crazy. That is the only possible defense for Trump. Because any other line suggests that this is being foisted cynically as a maneuver, as a political play to do X, Y, or Z, which is so beneath contempt that we are reaching new levels of contempt in his role as a public official that we found it necessary at times over the last three or four years to defend the assaults against him, particularly, I think, in what we came to believe as a as a wildly illegitimate investigation into his into the so called you know Russia Gate, um, there is no way to defend any of this except that he needs to be shot full of Thorazine and taken care of in an institution. Because just to blow back on Noah a little bit, you're right that they have affidavits and that some of these affidavits were submitted to court, but not all of them. Because Rudy Giuliani stood there and he said, I have 200 affidavits in my hand. Oddly, a number redolent of the official who said there was a conspiracy so immense 70 years ago, who said he had 205, the names of 205 communists working for the State Department. But he said, I have 200 affidavits here, but you can't see them. There are eight affidavits that we have submitted to courts in Michigan. I have 200 more, but you can't see them. Right. I'm not showing them somehow... to you because it's, it's, it would endanger the affiance in the affidavits. Well, guess what? An anonymous affidavit is not an affidavit. <laughs> you cannot swear to something anonymously. That doesn't exist. That is, by definition, an affidavit that pro- that proffers evidence has to be, the accusation has to be made by a person whose name is known to everybody else. That is the security against exactly what Rudy Giuliani just did, which was to say, here's a charge, but the person who's making the charge isn't going to say who they are. I'm just telling you that there, there's an affidavit, but it's too dangerous for them 
to come forward. They also, you know, they, they, there were two, uh, there was that explanation and also that they had to keep it to themselves ahead of the court, because you, if you were to reveal this before you had introduced it into evidence, it would somehow be tainted. This is a new, I'm not an attorney. This is a new one to me that you have to save all your evidence for the big reveal because then that seems more showmanship than, than anything. Okay, but, but this is a very important point. And the fact that you use the phrase, the big reveal, that's kind of what I felt like in the, I, I didn't watch the whole press conference um, for the sake of my own sanity, but I did see snippets um, and was following along as in real time as John and Noah sort of did, <laughs> had a really interesting commentary on our, on our little text thread. But this is a kind of showmanship, right? And that, that's why I agree with you, John. That is that is contemptible because you do not turn our political process, which in this in the last you know few years has been stress tested in the extreme and is now under great duress given the pandemic and and polarization. You don't try to put on a reality show when it's time to leave office. You don't try to lay the groundwork for your next campaign by blowing up the system that you've just been ejected from. And and that's where I think. You know, his diehard fans love this as performance art, but it's 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 contemptible and it's also detrimental to the health of our system long term, because the other side will use this as an example we know of what's huge... allowable if we continue to allow this. And I have one silver lining. I was going to say one silver lining to the chaos and, and insanity of yesterday is that more Republican elected officials are now saying Joni Ernst and Mitt Romney are coming out and saying enough already. This is, you know, move on. This is and this is why to. Two things to, to say, you know, uh, to that. Listen, as, con- as a conservative, conservatives should be more attuned than, than most to, to precedent. Bad precedent begets worse precedent. You don't want to set precedent because it's going to be used against you in ways you can't foresee. Maybe. But in this case, why on earth would a Democrat emulate this kind of performance when it is so contemptuous and so backfiring on them. And I'm going to introduce now Sidney Powell, who is an attorney. She was a former United States attorney. She was flanking Rudy Giuliani. And she made the most news in that press conference. She said, alleged, um, very uh, ill-considered allegation where she said, look at the scale of this corruption is such that we don't even know how deep it goes. Quote, we have no idea how many Republicans or Democratic candidates paid to have the system rigged to work for them. Republicans maybe also paid, paid money to have assist to have the votes rigged in their favor. Every Republican looked up from their phone in that moment and said, wait a minute, now they're coming for the legitimacy of my election. They're coming for my constituents and my position. And they should be terrified by the prospect that Donald Trump is essentially, and his attorneys are essentially saying, nice constituency you have there. It'd be a shame if we did something to it. Right. That's what Joni Ernst was reacting to, where she reacted very strongly. And every other Republican who hasn't said as much in public, but is now contemplating their their stability of their political careers is also thinking about very strongly. That was a very big mistake. And if Donald Trump's positioning himself for 2022, 2024, he made the cleave cleavage that Republicans may have to do that much easier by threatening them. I don't agree. Um because I think what is going on here is something new. And there's the reason I think that Christine is right to say that they might emulate him. They wouldn't emulate this specifically, but um, stretching the truth, playing games with the truth, saying that the other side has fixed things, has stolen things. We've now been talking for, you know, weeks about how sick it makes us that we're being told, you know, that uh, there's no such thing as voter fraud and these elections are pristine and wonderful and everything. When just two years ago, we were being told that the Georgia uh, gubernatorial race was stolen from Stacey Abrams. So it's all whose ox is being gored. Well, okay, we've been saying that and that's fine. Um, The notion that after this, a a creditable Republican politician who has not who has not met Romney or Joni Ernst and hasn't come up and said, this is all horrible, can stand up and say, if something similar is alleged by, by Democrats, can stand up and say, that's, that's outrageous. How dare you say such a thing? How dare you call our institutions into question? The ready answer is, what the hell are you talking about? Who was the head of your party in 2020 after the election 
who alleged, who had lawyers standing there saying that trucks were pulling up in front of a Michigan polling place and un, and offloading 100,000 ballots, all of which were marked perfectly for Joe Biden, which is not true. It's a lie. They took some form of this allegation to court. The judge said, come on, man. What are you kidding me? Threw the whole thing out. There have been 33 things brought before judges in one case involving the question of the of of the the post election day ballots in Pennsylvania they prevailed in one case and have lost in 32 so far that's republican judges democratic judges i don't care who it is any effort to bite back against future efforts to play games of this sort has now been removed from the republican quiver but um, that arrow is gone. But but I, I'm with Noah <clears throat> because I, I think this is such a pure train wreck that um, I, I think it would discourage um, Republicans and Democrats from making any effort that is similar uh, uh, to this effort. And by the way, I don't I don't, I don't think the accusation about um, the possibility of Republicans um, paying to cheat or, or 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 for fraud or whatever is is the biggest. Um, news takeaway. I think the biggest news made yesterday was actually Rudy Giuliani's um, uh, hair dye uh, streaming down his face, which which was well, a metaphor, right? Yeah, exactly, right. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's it, it's just it's a little too on the nose. It was a little too on right. the nose. Yeah, melting. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so it is such a perfect catastrophe that um, I think it might it might sort of take these kind of shenanigans off the table for a while. Look, um, in 2016, when the Access Hollywood tape uh, came out and people thought, okay, that's it, right? Paul Ryan, uh, people went, privately went to Trump and said, you have to drop out of the race. Paul Ryan really thought he was either going to have to drop or it was going to be a 40-state loss, whatever. And what did what did Trump do? He had the second debate, and what did he do? He brought the Clinton accusers to the second debate why was that a clever move? Because what he's saying is, really? You're going to hold me accountable for this thing that I said and did when her husband, you know, got a, you know, got serviced in the Oval Office and is credibly accused in some cases of forcible sexual assault. And you're going to, you're now going to turn around and, and vote for her when she stood to defend him that is how precedent works in political gamesmanship it's not that it's a it's a it's a sort of like a, a neat through line you know he does this therefore you can do that it is that avenues of argument and discussion about what is and what is not out of bounds are now gone nothing is out of bounds anymore nothing is out of bounds what trump has done has eliminated boundaries Period. I don't know what the boundaries are. He is. He has his lawyer, a lawyer for him, standing in front of the American people, claiming that the Venezuelan communists have stolen the American election. Not they may have. Not that a. That is the claim that a lawyer standing next to his lawyer made yesterday afternoon. That Maduro and the late Hugo Chavez using Smartmatic on the Dominion voting machines, Dominion having once shared an office supposedly with a Soros adjunct in Toronto, whatever the hell any of this is, there are no boundaries anymore. There are no lines that you cannot cross. Trump has obliterated the lines. And if you think that there won't be consequences for Republicans, when those lines are crossed, particularly if the mainstream media, who all we all think is incredibly unfair to Republicans, well, so they'll do X, Y, and Z. People say this is so unfair. The media is so unfair. And what's the media going to say? I mean, not that they'll say it openly, but what they'll say is all's fair in love and war. All rules have been broken. All boundaries have been obliterated. You people cannot be allowed to maintain power because you're all crazy and you got lawyers whose whose hair dye drips down their face and and are you know and and are basically QAnon are basically proposing QAnon as the governing philosophy of how to understand the 2020 elections 
we don't have to play fair with you any. Even pretend. We don't even have to pretend to play fair. It's all over. Yeah, okay, when I see we the my cousin you. Vinny defense deployed in court, then I will consent to or agree to your uh, your stipulation here. Well, the the other thing we don't know yet is how much of Trumpism is going to stick to the Republican Party brand, right? Because I got a lot of emails and texts yesterday from from friends on the other side of the aisle who are like, the Republican Party is dead. This this press conference proves it once and for all. Final nail in the coffin. Republicans are over. To which I, I'm not in, I'm not on board with that, because if that was true, then Antifa is the final nail in the coffin of the Democratic Party, right? I mean, you can play that game on both sides, but we still don't know, and it will only time is going to tell us, particularly in the next two years, how much of the Trump chaos is now uh, completely baked into the Republican Party and how much of it is, is going to be seen as a one-off. I obviously am arguing that I hope it's the latter, but it could be the former, in which case... There will be serious problems down the line for Republicans. I spent six months in various, um, you know, uh, text threads, you know, group chats with liberal friends of mine saying, you're all nuts. There's no post office conspiracy to rig the election for Trump. Trump is not going to try to steal the election. Trump is not doing this. Trump is not. This is all crazy. You're like. You're chasing your own shadows. You're all terrified. You think he has magical powers to win elections. That's the only way you can understand 2016. You don't want to understand the right way. Get over yourselves. This is ridiculous. Okay? Now I see two different things, one of which is they feel a little more emboldened by the possibility that they were right that Trump wants to stage a coup since all these news articles say what Rudy Giuliani is proposing to Trump is that he they can stir up enough chaos that rival slates of electors will be appointed in states and the entire election can somehow be taken back despite a despite a uh you know what is clearly an electoral college victory and 6 or 7 million vote uh margin for Biden um and if that is a strategy that Trump is enjoying, then the notion that he wouldn't welcome a coup at the very least is no longer anything that I can argue. That's number one. And number two, now they're arguing that there's a coup, right? That's the piece that you wrote, Noah, right? The dumbest coup that we've ever seen. They're arguing that there's a coup, and the coup involves Pennsylvania officials manufacturing ballots alongside voting. By the way, you don't need a physical ballot if you have a voting machine from Dominion, which is a voting machine, but manufacturing physical ballots uh, in conjunction with the Venezuelan Communist Party screwing around with voting machines. Yeah, I mean, I'm on text threads with my liberal friends as well, and they're married to their anxiety. They love their anxiety. They're really concerned that Michigan is going to flip somehow. All evidence to the contrary. I mean, all rationality to the contrary, notwithstanding. They like this heightened state of frustration. The and president of the United States. It's not a coup. You're, it's, it's harebrained parliamentary maneuvers and meritless no, lawsuits. I'm sorry. That's not a coup. Noah, the president of the United States sent his lawyer out to say that the Venezuelan Communist Party was stealing the American yeah. election. Yeah, that's And therefore, crazy. wait, it doesn't matter whether you're saying it's crazy and everyone should understand it's crazy. I already said it was crazy. He's the goddamn president of the United States. Not for much longer. Deservedly for so. For long enough. And the reason why it's crazy is not because the president and the people around him are crazy. It's because the people alleging this have zero faith in American institutions, zero understanding of American institutions and the diffuse nature of elections and how they're conducted in this country and why there are checks on direct democracy that work and that function and that are very valuable in moments like these where we're not beholden to the White House to determine the outcome of elections. Yeah, we're not beholden to the White House. You are correct. And the institutions are going to hold and he is going to go. That doesn't mean that he's not setting the house on fire while he leaves. He has the accelerant and he has a match and he has, and he is convincing 75 million people that Venezuela, dead Venezuelan communists invested in Smartmatic in order to control the election seven years following the death of Hugo Chavez. Now, 
you can have all the contempt you want for anybody who believes in this or for the anxiety that is provoked among liberals and all of this. What I'm saying is we have crossed a Rubicon that I didn't think that we had ever crossed during the Trump presidency. I actually didn't think we had crossed it. I thought, okay, he won, you know, they've been doing terrible things, but that held too, right? Even that held. He would say to Don McGahn, fire Mueller, and Don McGahn wouldn't do it to see if he would say it again. This happened with Nixon too and all that. He didn't do it. All kinds of guardrails held, right? Andrew Weissman uh, Mueller's deputy complains that 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 Mueller didn't cross all sorts of boundaries in demanding or subpoenaing Trump or something like that because Mueller because those guardrails held as well. Mueller was not going to try to establish a new entirely new adversarial precedent between a special prosecutor's office and the presidency. He wasn't going to do that. That guardrail held as well. The Democrats impeached Trump on the basis of, I think preposterous, you know, uh, things that did not merit his removal from office. And that guardrail held. All these guardrails held. Then Trump loses the election fair and square. He loses the election fair and square. And now, systematically, it's not that the guardrails aren't holding. It is that the it is that the presidency itself is being um, degraded in systematic ways that his removal on the 20th of January will not simply provide a restorative moment where everything can bounce back to normal. He has given credibility to ideas and theories that were once thought that if you touch them, you were out of the common conversation. He is the president of the United States. They are now in the common conversation. Okay, so... There's, there's a lot of focus on the part of the press on Trump rallies um, to go down to the grassroots level and find 50 Trump supporters and 38% of them believe that, or around 38 out of 50 believe, you know, everything that comes out of the president's mouth because they have to believe it. That's what we're focused on. We're not focused on the people who provided this presidency with institutional support and gravitas that has, he's, that has buttressed him for the last four years and on which he's relied people like Hugh Hewitt and Byron York, and Kim Strassel, and Fox News, and half a dozen other institutions that want to be very reliably supportive of this president somehow say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. This is, this is actually harmful, detrimental to our political position. That sort of thing is going away. And all of a sudden, they dominated the press's focus. This was the phalanx of Donald Trump's support in the institutional GOP. And all of a sudden, that's gone, and they don't matter anymore. Why don't they matter anymore? I don't. I, I'm. 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 They don't matter wrong. anymore because they. What they want is a narrative that suggests the GOP is lost. Is lost to Trumpism. Is it behold? Is mesmerized by him? Beholden to whatever he says. And maybe they are. But I don't know if they matter nearly as much as everybody kind of darkly wants them to. Anybody? <laughs> well, there. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? That there were there was there seemed to be a lot of shock that Tucker Carlson on a show was saying, you know. This is crazy. What 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 the Trump administration is doing is bonkers. We've invited Sidney Powell on. She won't come on. She's, her, you know, we've asked her for evidence. She won't produce it. Like the, the people who were supposed to be guarding his flank have fled and or are now actively saying, OK, if this is true, you got to prove it to us, too, which I think I mean, I, I, I am completely understanding of your passionate response, John. I do, however, think that when he's off the scene, when he is no longer sitting in the Oval Office and you have Biden in there uh, for however long Biden is in there, um, a lot of this will kind of go away. Uh, And I don't think he's undermining the institution, the presidency. What what I think he's actually proven is the way in which cults of personality in the 21st century develop around a president. And that's dangerous. It happened with Obama. It, it, It happened with Trump. That's actually something that both sides of the aisle should try to resist in the future. And actually, Biden winning is a is a health healthy sign of that. I I hope. Um, so I, I I share your your despair at the same time that I I even think the institution of the presidency will survive Trump. Um, a very difficult lesson has been learned. <laughs> I hope, um, but I think he's he he will, in the end, not prove to be as diabolical a destructive force 
as a lot of us feel he is right now. Yeah, look, I, I look can't help. I, I just can't help but think that it is. It's disgusting. It's despicable. It's worrisome. It is um, destabilizing. I agree with all that, but I can't help but think that all of this is far more clownish than it is sinister. That's just the way it comes across. And I think, by the way. Even the liberals who I think are addicted to um, panic and anxiety, they even know as for a certainty that none of this is going anywhere. Because the other story here is that um, Trump's pointless shenanigans are slowing down the um, uh, um, the transition process. And they know Biden is going to be in the White House. And um, the more these theatrics go on, um, the the greater the delay in um, uh, getting that administration off to a smooth start. Okay, so um, if I were if I calm down and say it's uh, more clownish than you know than than uh, nightmarish or whatever, um, uh, that's fine. Uh, Trump's not going anywhere. By which I mean he's going to stop being president, but he clearly isn't uh, going anywhere and therefore his example will be before us constantly over the next, you know, a uh, couple of years. And um, what is that going to mean? I'll, I'll give you a, an example of what it's going to mean. Much of the populist wing of the Republican party will be consumed with the question of, of what happens after the presidency, if he is pursued in legal fora, right? If the Southern District of New York indicts him for tax fraud, if uh, if a bank calls in the note uh, that it supposedly he you know he has a four hundred million dollar interest payment he's supposed to be making at some point in the spring, if that note is called in, there will obviously be a series of accusations that the note is being called in to destroy him and to ruin him and to do whatever. Um, and all of that will sort of go on, and what will happen is that there will be no way for a um, Republican counter effort, uh, either ideological, rhetorical, or whatever, against Biden to gain any purchase, because the eight hundred pound gorilla or the giant Macy's balloon isn't going to float off, isn't going to keep continuing to go down, you know, and, and then be deflated and put away till next year. So that's the other problem. I mean, that's we don't entirely know. Po- isn't, no, we don't know. It's entirely possible that he will serve as the kingmaker in 2022 and emerge a resurgent force in 2024. It's also possible that everything he's doing now is letting the air out of the balloon. I, I thought, I mean, here's the thing, like, I sort of thought a week and a half ago that the air was being let out of the balloon, right? I, think, I even think we sort of used that analogy here, that the air was being let out of the balloon, um, which is maybe why the accusations have to st- have had to get um, crazier and crazier and crazier uh, in, order, in order to, you know, pump air back into the balloon, uh, let's just say. Uh, or, as I say, that they are all crazy, that they have all gone crazy, and that Rudy is crazy, and that Trump is crazy, and that Rudy is pushing Trump's crazy button. And again, that would be the one, I would say, the one sort of mitigating factor where you could feel sorry for Trump, because in fact, what he is, is an, a crazy, unstable person who needs help, rather than a despicable, cynical person who is trying to set his party and the American political system on fire for his own, you know, ends, which by the way, itself is a weird thing because, and now I'm going to get into like, what does he want to be president for? Does he like being president? Well, is and you said serious? his party, he's not, he doesn't even care about the party. He's not a Republican. Right. He never, okay. He so for, forget the party. What does he want to be president for? I understand that he wants to win. He wants to win things. He wanted to win the presidency, won the presidency, got to be president, Right. There's no sign. He likes the rallies. He loves the rallies. He likes going, you know, he doesn't like being president. There's no way he likes being, he likes being kowtowed to. He doesn't like being president. He doesn't have a vision for America's future that he wishes to impart. If he did, he would have been more systematic about it and he would have been more successful at it given that he had a house and a Senate that were in his party's hands. 
He doesn't want to be president. He just wants to win the presidency and be a winner of the presidency and to play president, to have the Secret Service and to drive on the other side of the road and to be called President Trump and all of that. And he already got that. So he's really going to spend the next four years so he can climb back on the horse where he has to be president while he's, you know, hitting the age of 80. For what reason? What what accomplishment is he seeking to achieve? I mean, the only accomplishment I can see is that he would be the only person except for Grover Cleveland to be elected president after having lost the presidency. So he would be the second Grover Cleveland. Well, whoop de freaking do, you know? That's just great. What a fantastic thing to have on your resume that you and Grover Cleveland lost and then won again. Look, I think I think the first time around 2016, I don't think he wanted to be president. I think he wanted to run. I think, sure, it would have been thrilled to win. I don't know that he expected to win. But I think it's a different calculation now um, because he is, in the eyes of millions and millions of Americans, a, a genuine political force that speaks for them, that um, that seeks to um, assert um, a, 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 their vision, whatever that is, a kind of populist vision on, on the country. And that he does like that. I think that is a tremendous buzz. Um, he is he is a, a world's historic figure, uh, crazy as that is, like it or not. And for someone like him, that is that is um, everything. So I, I don't know that he doesn't that that's not something that he he's he's ready to uh, to just give up. I mean, not to sound like Larry Tribe here either, but he does have a huge legal target on his back. Him and his family have a huge legal target on their back. The Southern District of New York wants this guy's head, and they will pursue it. Okay, so you know what's the other interesting part about this? But you know, basically, uh, maybe it's worth the hail mary play of getting the electoral college to flip and do stuff so that he can get. Can have rival slates of electors throwing, you know, all, none of which, by the way, is actually even legally possible. But okay, um, think about what we could be talking about had he conceded on on Wednesday sometime. We could be talking about how Operation Warp Speed worked, how Operation Warp Speed, because maybe Pfizer didn't really use Operation Warp Speed except in terms of what it sees as the distribution afterwards. But that's not true of Moderna, and it's not true of AstraZeneca, which apparently now has results of a particular effectiveness with older people in its trials. And there are two other, I think, two other vaccine tests that are coming down the pike. So uh, the the main policy prescription that the Trump administration went all in on was this uh, lowering regulatory barriers, lowering, you know, testing all this in order to create these vaccines. And apparently it has been wildly successful. We could be talking about that. We could be talking about how he almost won because the policies that they did adopt back in March, particularly the Payroll Protection Act and other things, did keep the economy from sinking into a, a depression from which it could not possibly recover. We could be talking about that. We could be talking about the Abraham Accords in which the transfiguration of the Middle East may really be upon us, uh, fulfilling a seven-decade-old American foreign policy prescription. We could be talking about that. He is not letting us talk about any of that. He is, And all of that, by the way, could be a platform from which he could run again in 2024 better than this. Much better where he could say, look, the year that I left office, we we made peace in the Middle East, we saved America from, from a depression, and we created the vaccines that pulled us out of pandemic. And I'm running in 2024 because I delivered those results. They were not entirely visible to people when I was running or in the midst of when I was running in part because of unfair attacks on me. But here I am now, look at what this guy Biden did, whatever it happens over there. This is what I did. But that is not what we are going to remember. It, But it is, it's a funny, I mean, I think historians are going to have obviously so much fun uh, 10, 15, 20 years from now looking at Trump. But he is truly as a modern president, unique in that he didn't seem to care at all about his legacy. 
Even all of his talk about the wall, for example, had no follow through. And it's weird because our previous president, I think every single decision, if you judging by the way that his memoir describes it, every single thing that Obama did, he thought of his legacy. Like there, there's a kind of strange, and it is, I hate to say it, but one of the things people like about Trump is that he doesn't seem to really care what other people think of him, right? And that includes his legacy. So there's a strange kind of power in that that we're not used to seeing in an executive at that level. But it, it was both a strength, and I think you're right, John, it, in retrospect, it's going to prove a weakness for his reelection. Um, but it's fascinating to me, just kind I of I think, you know, it, to think about one's legacy, uh, one has to be able to imagine himself off the stage at some point, right? Or beyond the exactly. next 20 minutes. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, look, if you're a businessman and you and and your business is largely branding, uh there is no such thing as a legacy, right? I mean, one of the things about selling your name the way he has sold his name to Trump Stakes, Trump University, Trump Water, whatever it is, is that uh people who are concerned with legacy husband their name. That is the thing that is of value, existential, psychological enduring value to them, that the name should live on that the name should be something that people evoke, that the name is something itself of pr- pricelessness and that your children can be proud to have it and that their children can be proud to and all of that, right? But if you're willing to sell it for, you know, to, to, to brand water, you have a different set of calculations than the classic idea of, um, you know, uh, your name, like what? What do people say when their children disgrace them or something? They say, "You have tarnished our name." Right, you have tarnished our name, but that's not. He's, he's the Kardashian version, which which is right. the American success tale by by notoriety and tarnishing the name actually becomes a springboard for greater right. things. Right. So <laughs> legacy. So, but also, you know, there is a certain. I have to. I hate to say it, it's like uh, a perfect post religious. Uh, I, I, maybe that's the wrong wrong way to put it. I'm trying to sort of think about it in this way. So a per- perfect secularist worldview, which is uh, I'm going to die, and then that's it. Like I, you know, so I am going to I am going to reap everything that I can possibly reap while I'm alive, right now, because I could get hit by a truck tomorrow. Give me the money, show me the fame, make me the most famous person on earth. What do I care what happens after I'm gone? I don't, I won't know. I won't have any, I'll just be vanished. Whereas the great fear of humankind from time immemorial was that there were going to be punishments and and uh, you were going to be held accountable for your actions on earth <laughs> after you died. And And it wasn't just your name, but it was actually your legacy was something that God himself was going to judge you for. And you better be scared about, you know, doing really terrible things. And clearly that is, that is a calculation that does not come into Trump's head or a Kardashian's head and is increasingly difficult for people in our time to use as a framework, or at least Americans, or at least elite Americans who, who, who grow up in a world in which uh, that is not a frame that they that they see or feel. Okay. So let's, um, having, having had this, sorry, uh, unhinged conversation about unhinged people. Uh, let's talk about people who are totally hinged, but even uh, at least if not more contemptible, um, uh, because we have, uh, New York city school closures. We have, uh, I think Montgomery County, uh, uh, right outside DC is now closing in schools. Of course, LA schools have been closed. DC schools have been closed. Uh, and New York city schools have been closed on the basis of an agreement that mayor Bill de Blasio had with the teachers union that at a 3% positivity rate in the city, he would close the schools. Uh, that's a ridiculous arbitrary number. And indeed every measure that we have inside the schools says that the inside the schools, the transmission rate is 0.17%, and yet we uh, we're seeing this now, and um, at the same time, uh, Christine, uh, you pointed out that uh, our friend Wesley Yang at uh, Tablet discovered something interesting uh, in the United Federation of Teachers um, action items yesterday. 
Yes, the, right? what they, they've passed some resolution endorsing Black Lives Matter, which includes things like, you know, uh, uh, demolishing any idea of a kind of nuclear family in favor of promoting what they call black villages and just a whole lot of social justice nonsense. The Western nuclear family. Sorry, right? the Western nuclear family. Exactly. Yeah, right. Detonating it, the Western nuclear family in favor of it takes a village. It takes a village. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and just all the worst sort of nonsense, the kind of stuff actually we saw teachers unions in, in California and other places negotiating as part of their pandemic related security and safety concerns. So the, the, the power grabbing going on by unions and the, the sort of ideological, uh, agenda that's being pursued now comes with a very real cost. And actually, this is where I know I've I've always poo-pooed Noah saying people have to actually get to the streets and fight this. I'm noticing just among parent uh, chat rooms and discussions, uh, a lot more impatience with what's been happening. We all did the lockdown. Schools in DC, for example, never reopened since March. We have been dealing with everything at home. Um, and parents and students are kind of like, all right, now what? Like, what's going to happen in January? Because they've all said they keep pushing off the plans and the and the procedures. And San Francisco is having the same problem, very low transmission rates, but they're refusing now to, to open up. I do think that something's going to have to change in the new year because this this can I, I know it sounds we keep saying this cannot continue. But the, the data about the cost to the kids is now growing too large to ignore, especially for the kids who the teachers unions claim to most want to serve, which is the sort of lower income um, uh, at risk kids, uh, kids with special needs in particular are really suffering uh, during this virtual learning environment. So I'm hoping Noah's right that eventually parents and students themselves start some sort of movement to reopen their schools. But there are also a lot of parents who are fearful and they're kind of being co-opted by the unions as an example of the safety concerns and the, the extreme right. safetyism. Okay. So here's one, one analogy to think about. Uh, there was once an idea abroad that uh, particularly in the 1960s and seventies that um, there would be no way to stem the rising tide of taxation Uh because uh, taxes were imposed at the property tax level and state tax level and all this. And basically <clears throat> that uh, the forces arrayed, uh, the people wanted so much from government that they would, you know, they w- and, and government wanted to do so much. And this was all popular and survey said it was all popular and all that, that there was no way to have a real tax revolt in the United States. And then in California in the 1970s, there was a popular tax revolt. Right, Proposition Thirteen, led by Howard Jarvis. The idea of Proposition Thirteen was that uh, your property taxes were being used in ways that you that you could, by referendum, you could put a ceiling on how much your property taxes could be increased. Um, and it was poo pooed. It was made fun of, um, and it passed, and it ushered in a new period in the United States. Uh, that was then typified by the Reagan tax cuts of the early uh, 1980s. Something in the wake of this pandemic could be happening with parents and schools and teachers unions and the public. I'm sorry to interrupt, but a really important point to bring up that you just referenced that, that that, um, initiative was upheld by California voters this year. It was on the ballot as a prop whether or not to repeal it. And even as 10 million Californians headed to the polls to vote against Donald Trump, they affirmed that, reaffirmed that Mm -hmm. as part of the state social compact. Right. So think about this. What I'm saying is that uh, there have been times when we've looked at things and we've argued about things and we've had all this and it's sort of like, it's just, it's too big. It's too big. You know, the the, the interests are, are... Parents don't form enough of a of a spine in the United States. There are increasingly fewer Americans or parents as those you know people, parents and grandparents. But you know, parents and you know, teachers unions are very powerful, particularly at the urban level. And you know, then you have administrators and you have a Department of Education, fifty state departments of education, and all that. They're all working across purpose, and we can't really do this. I don't know. I I you know things like what has happened here over the last eight months can have long-term political consequences that we can't foresee. And the first test of that is going to be next year 
in the New York City mayoral election. Bill de Blasio cannot run for re-election. He's lucky he can't run for re-election because he would be destroyed. That would make this a much clearer choice. But someone in that election is going to run as a tribune for parents. Someone is going to say that what happened in New York City with the schooling is a form of government... uh, uh, you know, sweetheart relations between government and public sector unions that was actually openly harmful to children and that it cannot happen again and that we need to put new controls in place to make sure that it doesn't happen again. That will be something that somebody takes up. I, I do, And it only takes one person to open up the day. I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah. Well, I, I just think... I mean, I think that's possible. There is also the possibility that comes beginning in the spring of 2021 um, uh, that the vaccine uh, has fulfilled uh, the promise it now shows. Um, there is distribution. Um, uh, that's successful. We, we begin pulling out of this pandemic for real and sort of all is forgotten, if not forgiven, you know, that, that, that these issues just don't retain the salience because the whole country is so eager to move on and kids will be back in school and and that that whole fight will just kind of be um, agreed. We, we, everyone will agree to have forgotten about it. Okay, Maybe, but teachers will perceive themselves to teachers unions will perceive themselves to have won this fight and they will become more aggressive and more audacious. Um, Christine is noting one of their demands. Another one is that um, they should be first in line to get this vaccine, even though the <laughs> rates of the rate for real. And and there are schedule three on the WHO list, which is right below people who are in dire need of this thing or they're going to die. Um, even though the rates of infection in these schools are particularly low. When New York City, the, the nation's largest school district, decided to shut its doors, they had tested 140,000 students and teachers in the system. The positivity rate that they got back was 0.23%. Um, which is negligible to the point of just being ridiculous. Uh, And in the wake of this closure of New York City schools, there was this very cryptic letter that was released by Northeastern governors, uh, the governors of New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, very cryptically talking about how in-person learning is the best possible scenario for children, and there's very minimal risk, and schools should be open, Um, not directly addressing New York, but directly addressing New York. Um, The fact that they were cryptic about it suggests that they really do understand they have a gun to their heads, but they're getting very tired of it. In places like California, you have lawmakers now saying this is, quote, state-sanctioned segregation, the extent to which you have schools closed in places where there are very minimal infection rates, but public or private, uh, private schooling is open for people who can afford it. Um, same as, as Christine said, is true in DC and Chicago, across the country in these big city um, union dominated school systems. And you can see the, the politicians who are beholden to these people getting very frustrated with the demands that are coming down the pike. And we saw some of them in the spring from California teachers, the California Teachers Union, which made demands like, in order to open up the schools, we need Medicare for all, we need <laughs> rent abatement, we need, as, as she said, you know, making um, police violence, uh, yeah. which is a leading cause of death and trauma for Black people, a serious moral issue. And they, they had expansive progressive social justice demands that had no bearing whatsoever on education or their jobs, right. for that matter. And they can, if they emerge from this crisis victorious, you can't expect they're not going to pare back these demands and go back to normal. I, I want to propose, though, I think Abe's scenario is interesting that, you know, people want to move on. Uh, another way of looking at this is that it will have consequences that will pop out in weird ways later. And I would therefore, I would analogize this then to the, um, to the financial meltdown. Remember, the financial meltdown took place in 2008, really six weeks before the election. And the election, though you could say this election turned on the pandemic, I, I don't really know that it did. Actually, I don't know that the results are going to show that it did if, if it had been more you know, clearly a Biden runaway victory. You could maybe say that. I don't think that that's something you can necessarily read from this. But certainly the the 2008 election really didn't turn on on the meltdown in the same way. And and uh, there was no reckoning. Like uh, elections are when we have reckonings for these sorts of things. And there was no reckoning. And then in 2012, oddly enough, uh, the Republican Party, which could have nominated somebody 
who wasn't somehow implicated in the financial meltdown and could have prosecuted a more populist case about what happened, nominated Mitt Romney, who was a hedge fund guy, and therefore you know couldn't stage a kind of argument against Washington's behavior in and after the meltdown. So what did we get? We got Trump. I mean, you know, the 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 role of the financial meltdown and the rise of Donald Trump has, is the least told and most important part of the Trump the rise of Trump, because that was the we got screwed, rich people got richer, we got nothing, we're poorer than we were, and all these other people who didn't need to be made whole seem to be made whole, and we are we are getting deeper and deeper and deeper in a trench, right? So. That was eight years later that there were really serious material political consequences from the financial meltdown. Now, the pandemic is a different thing because it didn't happen as a result of policy, but, you know, in the same way. But uh, if there are long-term consequences, if, if we do not reckon with what happened in our civil society as a result of the pandemic, it could pop out in different ways, more local than national, more like, is there an agenda against the progressives in the cities, right? This is the big question, because you have not only the school systems, but this war that progressives are staging on public safety. And they seem to have a free hand, and there doesn't seem to be much of a counterweight, which is why the counterweight politically isn't going to be able to isn't going to come from the Republican party which doesn't really exist there it's going to have to come from inside democratic ranks it is going to have to come from people who are like you people are all crazy and you're dry, you're going to drive this city and my children into an early grave what happened to common sense you're all nuts you can't run a school system for the benefit of the teachers and the administrators or for kids you can't not have cops my kids are trying to walk down the street. They're going to get shot in the head. Like, what? What are you crazy? That is, you know, and if there's that is neoconservatism. By the way, that is the source of neoconservatism. Was sort of like New York going totally bananas in the late '60s, and people like my father and Urban Crystal and others saying, "What the hell is going on here?" But this are you is why nuts? this is why the co-optation of the safety argument by the progressive left is quite dangerous, and why. You know, people who care about free speech and it, the the triggering of I feel unsafe, that's actually a powerful argument that does allow, you know, the, in D.C., for example, most of the parents are Democrats themselves and they, you know, they voted in a liberal mayor and they voted for Biden and they probably support the teachers unions and the teachers unions have been very effective t- talking about this in terms of safety. And I think that's in part because until now, we don't have a lot of data about how how it's been detrimental to the kids. We're getting that data now. And in the next six months, there'll be even more of it, particularly for systems like the one my kids are in that have been shut down the entire time. Kids are suffering and there's real evidence of that. And so I think, how do you argue, how do you listen to teachers unions tell you it's unsafe for them to go into a place that the science shows it is safe and that other people are doing safely while you watch your kids suffer. That's where I think for the schools in these urban uh, school districts, it's going to start to be, you're going to have to believe the narrative and not your own eyes if you continue down that path. I'm just going to give you one last example from the 1990s in New York when Rudy Giuliani wasn't the barking mad lunatic that he was last night. Rudy Giuliani decided to stage an assault or a campaign against porn shops. (laughs) Porn shops in every neighborhood. There were porn shops, you know, selling DVDs, v, you know, videos, sex toys, whatever. Um, and uh, this was, it's hard to sort of recall this, but um, uh, this was at a time when the liberal establishment was like obsessed, you know, was First Amendment absolutist. And the idea was this was a, this was a horrifying breach of, of free speech rules and, and, and rules of, uh, you know, proper rules and who was Rudy Giuliani to do this and all of that. And they wrote these rules, right? They wrote these regs that said they could not be within a thousand feet of a school. That was the trick. Because uh, it wasn't you couldn't have a sex shop. It's that you couldn't have it a thousand feet as a zoning matter. You couldn't have it a, a thousand feet from a school. And one of the reasons that this worked was, miraculously, while 
you know, free speech advocates and the ACLU and the NYCLU were all in out up in arms over the horror that this threat to our free speech represented. Parents in every neighborhood were having demonstrations in front of porn shops because it was like, how am I supposed to explain to my kids that there's this porn shop on the corner? What is it? What's, what are these pictures in the window? All of that. And of course, all the uh, all the sort of um, secondary sleaze that went along with it, drug dealing and various whatever else is going on, prostitution, stuff like that. And um, courts ruled in Giuliani's favor, not entirely because the ACLU and the NYCLU were wrong, but because it was very clear that he was tapping into a populist concern in a liberal city about the degradation of public life, particularly for children. And so there is a record, there is a history of this kind of liberal establishment versus a populist, commonsensical reform, which is, just don't make my kids walk past hardcore pornography. Like, why was this ever allowed to happen? And that's why I say there are, you know, these are green shoots of possibility here. They can be stomped out. Abe could be right that it could all just disappear into some kind of uh, devoutly to be to be wished um, amnesia about the horrors of this year, or not. I don't know. So with that, we will uh, really hope you have a good weekend, and that we're not going to have any psychosis over the weekend just for a couple of days would be nice. So for Christine Abenau, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.